Hi everyone, this is Steve Hargadon. It's November 10th, 2009, and a special welcome to you for this Future of Education and Conversations.net session. <laughs> Pedro, no, no fair making me laugh early on. Our guest tonight is Henry Jenkins, and we are waiting for him to come into the, to the room. Um, he is, among other things, the author of Convergence Culture. Uh, what he does, um, the breadth of what he does amazes me. Uh, but we'll let him tell you a little bit about that when he's here. I'd like to recognize Teresa Beffa, who's here. She's the Conversations.net intern slash co-host. She'll be watching the chat tonight to make sure that um, if you have questions that uh, they get answered. Um, we'll, do, we'll do our introductory stuff until Henry gets here. The show is sponsored by LearnCentral.org. This is my um, passion project. I do work for Illuminate now, and I'm helping them to spearhead this uh, social network for educators. It's really a lot of fun. You do get access to Illuminate for free in that network uh, using the uh, program. You can also hold uh, public webinars. If you're interested in holding a webinar and it's educational and public, then you are uh, welcome to do that. Oh, hang on, I'm getting a phone call. Be right back. So talk amongst yourselves. I'm calling back. I think it must be Henry. Okay, so that was Henry, but I got his voicemail, uh, although the caller ID came up with his name on it. So hopefully he's going to get that message and be in here quickly. Uh, back to LearnCentral.org. Uh, hopefully a, a, a great location for you to go to find others uh, network and to um, other educators and to find people with like interests uh, holding sessions with them. So coming up on futureofeducation.com and conversations.net, we've got uh, Richard Halverson and Alan Collins tomorrow, Rethinking Education in the Age of Technology. Thursday, Larry Cuban, which should be a lot of fun. Read um, any work by Larry, but uh, he's a lot to say about education. Talk to him again. I talked to him about it two years ago. On November 19th, Howard Reingold's back. Uh, on Howard's Brainstorms. Then on December 1st Dan, 1st, Dan Willingham on Why Students Don't Like School. December 2nd, Julie Evans from Project Tomorrow. December 3rd, Curtis Bonk from The World Who Wrote The World Is Open. Angela Myers on December 8th and Sherry Toledo on December 9th. And lots more. More Howard Rheingold, James Paul G., uh, Clay Shirky, Doc Searles, Tim Magner, David Thornburg, Dennis Litke, and yes, Sir Ken Robinson in January. So, uh, okay, I'm getting another message from Henry, so hang on and keep talking. It might be fun to, uh, let's go ahead and do the map. I'll come back to the Illuminate session, but here's a way you can actually put where you're located on the map. Click on the wand with the red dot. Hi, Henry Jenkins here. Where you are. I'm hoping that's Henry. Is that you? Hello? Yes, it's me. I'm sorry. I've had all kinds of technical difficulties. Hey, you you're here. You're phone, here. Uh, and We're I'm so excited. Here. Can you hear us? Yes, I'm so sorry about the delays. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Hello? You broke up for a uh, second there. So you're not hearing me? Anna, don't worry. Up? In fact, it's partly my fault because, I hang up? because we had, uh, I think we gave you the wrong teleconference bridge number. 
Okay. No, Does we are hearing work? you. Sounds like it's going in I'm and out. I'm just trying to find. All right, you're hearing me. All right, I'm. My office is really patchy on the cell phone, yeah, but it's you, the only thing I've gotten through. that actually got me through. So. Uh, we are. All right, so here we are. Does this work consistently if I sit here? <laughs> okay. We're this, so glad to have you. Is this through or? Um, yes, this is working consistently. Happy to be here. Okay, that's good. Well, thank you. You just broke up for a second there, but we're, but we're going to be patient, and we're just delighted to have you here. So I'm going to do just a quick intro, and I'll come right back to you. All righty, sounds good. Did you hear that? Perfect. Okay, so if this is um, your first time no, in Illuminate, I wanted to let you know how you can... Sorry? If it's okay, Henry, I'm just going to give a brief overview of Illuminate try. for those who are actually in the session. And there is a delay. We're, hearing, we're getting a delay from you, but still worth hearing from you so we can live with the delay. So this is a quick orientation to Illuminate for those of you who are in the session. Just know that you have ways to participate here. Henry's not going to be able to see your chat and the questions, but uh, we'll pass them on to him. Uh, you do see the other participants in the window. You can see 68 people in the session so far. Uh, you've got some emoticons. You can raise your hand to take the mic if you want to ask a question. That's the hand symbol with the green arrow up. There's a smiley face, a clapping hand, a confused look, and a disapproval. Those are available for you. Um, you've also got the chat window, and if it starts coming by really fast, then you can uh, switch to the wide view. Go up to View Layout and click on Wide Layout. And that should let you see the chat a little bit better. This is a participative session, so we're hoping that you'll take advantage of this technology and, and participate. And uh, that beep says that maybe Henry's back. I'm back, and I'm trying a landline that seems to work a little better. Oh, you sound great. Great. All right, this will work. Okay, so let, let me get to the correct slide here. I'm going to do one more quick. I'm going to do the world slide again for people to let us know where you're coming in from. So let's, I'm going to give you permissions again. Go ahead and put your, use that wand with the red dot and place this where you're, you're listening from onto the map. And it looks like we have people all over the U.S. And I'm seeing Asia and Europe. And if you shout it out where you're listening from in the chat, maybe Terry can tell us who, where else people are, have been listening from. I haven't been able to watch. Previously, you got India. <laughs> awesome. Yay, India. Troy. Yeah, well, hooray all for over, Detroit. All over the place. <laughs> okay. The Philippines, Philippines, New York. London. Well, wherever you're listening from, we're delighted to have you here. I'm sure that you're excited to hear from Henry, so we're going to move forward. If you're in the U.S., you can do the same thing on this map. Let us know where you're listening from. Probably big fans of Henry in the Boston area and now in Southern California. It's a pretty good representation from all over. Those of you in South Florida, I hope you've survived the weather. Okay, so we're really delighted to have Henry Jenkins here tonight. Um, Henry, uh, why don't you say hi, and your voice is coming through loud and strong on this landline. 
I'm delighted to be here. Uh, greetings to all the people who've tuned in for this. It should be a lot of fun. Well, yes, it should be a lot of fun. Okay, so my first question for you is, do you sleep? <laughs> uh, as much as I'm able to, uh, I suffer from insomnia, so I sometimes get up in the wee hours and post things. But by and large, I'm trying to work, uh, restrict myself to 14-hour work days or something thereabouts. I'm stunned by the volume of content that you've produced. You describe yourself on your blog as prolific as hell. Why is that? Well, I think unlike a lot of academics, I had journalistic experience before I went into the university. So as a journalist, you learn to write no matter what, and you, you sort of crank out the prose. Um, so that's the, you know, the blog is often long-winded because I simply don't have the time to go back and prune and re-edit. But you know, I spend my life involved in really rich and interesting conversations. And so when I sit down to write, I'm simply trying to recapture those conversations and share them with a larger community that hasn't been part of those dialogues. Um, so it, it's, you know, I, I'm to the point where I can type as fast as I can think, and uh, I can think pretty damn fast. So a, a lot comes out in the course of a, of a week. But I'm also at the point where I'm so overbooked with meetings that I'm having trouble getting the thing, getting time to write out the the blog post, which is why my readers are probably seeing more interviews and more guest posts and other things to sort of keep the flow going between times when I actually have time to sit down and knock out stuff that's totally my own. So we're going to pull it. But I've come to see my blog as a community resource rather than as an individual resource. And so it's exciting to me to be able to bring interesting conversations to people and to introduce them to thinkers that I've met in my travels. and to share the work of students and colleagues with them. Well, we've put, you can't see it, but we've put your blog post up in a web tour window, or your blog site, so people can see it. It's uh, www.henryjenkins.org. And the link's in the chat. And for everybody to remember that the, the session is being recorded, and the chat uh, log is recorded as well. So anything that comes up in the chat, you'll be able to look at later. So uh, Henry, you, there's a line in your book, Convergence Culture, where you say, it's in the intro, toward the end of the intro, and you say, you are now entering Convergence Culture. And all I could think of in my mind was, you are now entering the twilight zone. How shaped have you been by science fiction? <laughs> or am I imagining the connection there? Oh. No, I think I probably had that somewhere in my mind. Uh, the opening of the Twilight Zone, the opening of the Outer Limits, uh, and the closing where we now return control over your dial back to you. I mean, science fiction has been one of the tools that I use to think with for my entire life. Uh, you know, I've written a lot about science fiction fans, but science fiction infuses pretty much everything I write in one way or another. I said that growing up politically on me, the two most important influences were Martin Luther King and Star Trek. And that's because I grew up in Atlanta in the 60s. And uh, those combinations helped me to think about diversity, the future, in very powerful ways. And it continues down to the present day, science fiction films, science fiction television, comics, uh, science fiction prose writing really inform a lot of my thinking. And science fiction itself is a theoretical space, right? That science fiction writers are imagining alternatives uh, based on their cultural and social analysis of our present moment. 
And as they do so, they, they don't predict the future, but as I wrote recently, they often inform it. Most in the sense they tell us what it might look like, and they often shape the generation that's going to build that future. And it's certainly true for me. And one of my favorite slides to show when I do presentations is a picture of James Kirk with the communicator because it reminds me, and I hope the audience, of how much, uh, how exciting it must be to hold a cell phone for a youth and all of the capabilities because we've dreamed of it for, for decades. Yeah, I, I, there was a lot of British science fiction 20 years ago that talked about having the box that you carried around with you and gave you access to information on all kinds of things. Or you can think about the computer and quantum leap. Uh, similarly, giving us anywhere access to the information we need in order to make decisions on the fly. And every time I pick up my iPhone, I, I, or I think about those earlier images of all-purpose information appliances that enabled us to navigate complex social environments. You can think about the handlers on uh, Max Headroom, who, which required a human intelligence back in the lab to mo allow Max, Max and Edison Carter to move through the, the real-world environment. But now we have sort of information appliances that help us navigate that on a, a regular basis. So it seems to me that part of what makes you unique is your willingness to look uh, into popular culture as a as sort of a serious endeavor. How would you describe that aspect of what you bring to the discussion about education? Well, I don't know that I'm unique, but I certainly know that education has historically defined itself in opposition to popular culture. And you know, I, my sense is that it does so at its own peril because popular culture is I'm not unique in using popular culture to think with. I think the current generation plops references to pop songs and comics and TV show dialogue into their conversation on a regular basis. It's their reference point for making sense of the world around them. So when a teacher says to a student, oh, that pop culture stuff doesn't belong in my class, they also say to the student, and what we do in my class has nothing to do with how you think and talk outside of the classroom. And you know the world, the world outside the classroom is a whole lot bigger than the world inside it. So you've effectively cut yourself off from a larger conversation. If as an educator you're not engaged with the popular culture pursuits of your students. Well, and, and especially in a period of time where you point out there's so much of a participative, participative nature of being uh, a fan, that that, that message is, seems to be even stronger, which is the things that you do in that way don't really matter. So um, would you define convergence? Well, it's a shifting term. Uh, the way I've defined it here is not as a technological convergence, which is what I used to call the, I call the black box fallacy, the idea that we're going to have a single black box that all of our media flows through. We are a lot closer to having that kind of black box version of convergence now than I thought we'd ever be four years ago because I think in some ways the iPhone has worked out the relationship between a lot of media flows and does serve a variety of functions for us in a way that's intuitive. But well, my argument was that convergence begins as a cultural process rather than as a technological process. So if we say by convergence we're saying that there's an interconnection between all of the communication systems and information systems that surround us. 
then we have to say we've been living in a convergence culture for quite a while. Every word, every sound, every image, every relationship, every brand, every piece of media content flows through every available media channel. And that flow is shaped top-down by decisions in corporate boardrooms and bottom-up by decisions made in teenagers' bedrooms. And that that system is a system I'm calling cultural convergence. So transmedia storytelling, the idea of a story told across media channels, is simply one version of a larger system which says that you know, any amount of information that matters, the, your relationship to your lover, your relationship to your, your son or your parents is conducted now on multiple media channels. Uh, our relationship to our government, our relationship to ed for education is conducted through every available media channel. If it's not there legally, then it's going to be for people to forge a way to get it there illegally. And the, the desire to have content and media in the form we want it, where we want it, when we want it, how we want it, motivates an awful lot of behavior at the present time. So it feels like there's um, a recognized tension for you between um, the way that the consumer is interested in doing things and the way that corporations have typically uh, provided uh, access to information or connections. Um, am I reading that correctly? Well, I think the two interests are never totally aligned. Uh, so there is a tension, yes. I, I'm not saying that they're always oppositional. And I think there was a moment in cultural theory which really emphasized resistance. It sort of romanticized resistance as the be-all, the end-all, and that as long as we were resisting the corporate machine, we were somehow liberated from its constraints. Uh, I think we participate in a culture, a consumer culture now, where, which sometimes responds to our needs, sometimes exerts pressures on us, and sometimes we accept them, and sometimes we reject them. It's an ongoing negotiation between companies and their consumers, both of them putting pressure on the others. And we make a mistake if we create a model of Web 2.0 that makes it sound like one happy family, and users are generating content, and the companies are distributing them, and it all works smoothly, because we see over and over again conflicts between the interest of consumers and producers that shape our environment as much as moments of cooperation. So a lot of my recent work is just trying to map those relationships. Where is it working? Where does it break down? How can we create a, a system of media distribution that's more responsive to the diverse demands that consumers place on it? And how, is this how, how do we acquire the skills we need to meaningfully participate and shape the flow of media in our in our lives, um, which and, and how do, how does the flow of media, our ability to shape the flow of media, then contribute to our ability to get jobs, to be citizens, to be creative individuals, to be part members of communities, to be part of faith con congregations? All of those things are shaped by the flow of media. So it felt to me like there was a real theme of, of humility in the book as well, where you were basically saying, I'm not even sure we're seeing these things fully at this point in time, but we really need to be talking about them? Yeah, I think I, exactly. I think we see some things more clearly now than we saw when I wrote the book four years ago. So keep in mind that when that book was written, YouTube was not yet really visible as a phenomenon. iTunes was just effectively launching the digital distribution of television content. Second Life was not yet a topic of discussion. Twitter was not yet topic of discussion, even the social network sites were just moving from the shadows of our culture to the center of our culture. 
So those are changes just in the last three or four years that the book didn't exactly predict in the particulars. But the logic the book was describing, a world where culture becomes more and more participatory with those struggles over the terms of participation. That logic, I think, is borne out over the last four or five years. And so there are things we can see clearly now we couldn't see when I wrote it, that it's still being read today at all, given how much has changed in the technological environment is very flattering because it really was trying to capture a moment of transition and making some guesses about where that transition is going. I watched the movie with my children the other day, and it was about these young girls who had uh, said they'd seen fairies, and there was photographic evidence. And I can't remember what the name of the movie was, but hey. Arthur Conan Doyle actually comes out and supports them and says, yes, I believe this was true. So I went to Wikipedia and I looked up the actual photographs or photographs that had been taken at the time, and they were clearly forgeries to me. But I've grown up looking at photographs all my life, so it's a very familiar medium. And I, I keep thinking that maybe that's, that we're sort of in the same stage, which is very hard for us to distinguish what's really true here or what's long term, because in fact so much of this is new and we're not used to looking at it. Yeah, I, I, it's exactly. We we look at it as something that's ha we have not yet developed very well honed habits of mind, uh, skills at processing the new affordances of the digital age. And so yes, we are as easily deceived by things that 10, 15 years from now people will say, how could you fall for that? Uh, as Conan Doyle was by those early photographs. You know, we, we you know uh, McLuhan told us media are put out before they're thought out. That, but the thinking out process is more and more public, more and more visible, quicker. You know, we, we now are in a context where we know we're in a period of constant media change, and so we're hyper aware of it. And in that moment of time, frauds, hoaxes, uh, humbuggery of all kind, you know, spread. So that, that you know, Lonely Girl 15 would be something that P.T. Barnum would fully have understood. Uh, this thing that we, that's out there and seems to be real but may not be real. How do we resolve the status of what we're looking at? The alternate reality games which depend on sort of fake websites are unreal phenomenon. Uh, the release of the film 2010 or uh, 2012 you know, led to some fake websites that were part of the promotion of the film clearly labeled as you know, part of the film's promotion that sort of offers some pseudoscience explanation of how the world's going to end in 2012. And now NASA is having to actively <clears throat> spend resources to educate people on why those sites are fake and the, what the actual science would be and why the film sort of distorts the scientific understanding of the astronomical universe. Um, and so that, that in some sense is those, that confusion that was in the news this morning about 2012 uh, is the equivalent of the fairy pictures. So are there other things that you, in this cultural negotiation process that you think that we've learned over the last four years that, that weren't there when you wrote the book? Well, as I said, for me, I, I began the book by describing my sense of utter frustration over trying to buy a cell phone that's just a phone because I felt overwhelmed by crappy interfaces of early mobile phones that really made it difficult to navigate that kind of space. And now when I look at the iPhone, to some degree I've gotten smarter and I've developed skills at processing and dealing with mobile communications. To some degree the designers have gotten smarter. The interface of the iPhone is so much superior 
to the interface of the mobile phones that I was grumbling about in that book. To some degree, we discover what, we do, what, what the functions are as a society. Uh, what, do we, what do we do with mobile technology? What do we do with apps uh, on a piece of mobile technology? What are the kinds of modalities of information and experience that we want in this thing? So I, I see the iPhone as sort of in many ways responding to all the things that led me to be frustrated with the phone you know, four years ago um, you know, when I was showing its clicks because they couldn't sell me a phone that was just a phone. And I think that's a transition our society has gone through over the last four or five years. Uh, and I think we've made enormous progress in terms of understanding how we navigate through social networks and what, how social networks interface with broadcast forms of communication which is really the central focus of some work. That, the book that I'm writing right now on spreadable media is really about how, what's the interface between broadcasting and social networking, and how does that shape the circulation of ideas and information in a society. So I have to admit, I'm, I'm somewhat stunned for you to, to remind me that the book was written four years ago, because I didn't fully connect with that when I, I read, you wrote some things about, um, oh, maybe, or maybe I'm confusing with an interview, but you did talk about teachers needing to have social networks. And, and I thought, boy, we've sure seen that flower. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that was definitely in the book. What may confuse people is the new paperback edition has an added afterword that deals with Obama. So it makes everything seem much more up to date than it really is. But, and I did some, some minor tweaks in the rest of the book during that period. But the core of the book was written four years ago. Well, if we go back and written on a dial-up computer, I might add, uh, which is sort of was itself a, a symptom of of a changing time. Well, you can't see the chat, but there's there's continued chat now, and there was a, a lot earlier on about the iPhone. You're not the only one who feels like that's really sort of shifted the the, the platform. If we go back to this tension between the commercial and the grassroots cultures, one of the things I'm curious about is. Uh, when somebody like Frontline, when an organization like Frontline produces a documentary and they can produce hundreds of hours of really high quality additional content that maybe previously would have just been cutting room floor material but now gets released, does that impact the culture of participation by others? Is there a danger that there's still going to be an overwhelming amount of professional content making it harder for the, the amateur? Well, I mean, I think we have to think of multiple roles that amateurs play in this. I think that definitely that, that there's been, you know, that there's always a raising bar technically between professional content and amateur content. On the other hand, amateurs are catching up incredibly fast. So that, you know, I, if, you, if you look on the web and find the hunt for Gollum, for example, which is a fan-made sequel to Lord of the Rings, it looks remarkably like what, it was, what could be produced by Peter Jackson and his team you know, a handful of years ago. If you look at uh, Star Wars Revelations, uh, you, see special, you can see space battles and you can see lightsaber battles that every bit as technically achieved, accomplished as anything that Lucas produced in even the most recent trilogy and done entirely by amateurs working individually and on teams, using home computers and so forth. So the technical line is not unachievable. In fact, the gap is closing, but there's always going to be a push for higher technical standards. But what's interesting is a willingness to see 
the kind of raw edges of amateur production as a kind of authenticity. I mean, I don't think before YouTube, anyone would imagine quite how how much time many of us spend looking at amateur media content uh, through broad-scale distribution. You know, uh, like if we go back to the debate about Napster, people said, "Well, amateurs are distributing their music using Napster," and people rolled their eyes and said, "Yeah, that's a subterfuge. This is really about piracy." When you look at YouTube. The most popular content on YouTube is pretty consistently user-generated rather than commercially produced. And yes, there's a lot of commercial content there and a lot of piracy going on there, but there's also an awful lot of stuff generated at the grassroots level that's getting broader circulation than anyone would have imagined. And there's global content flowing into YouTube from other professional producers who historically would have been blocked from access to the American marketplace. So I think I think it's it's the relation between amateurs and professionals is shifting and it's complex. And yes, technology is a barrier, but it's even that's a very difficult thing to nail down. So we're getting questions in the chat, and, and please, if you have a question for Henry, put it in the chat and, and start raising your hands because we'll take questions uh, from you live. But Deb asks, what discovery has made the last four years jump so fast technologically? Do you feel like there's an easy way to pinpoint that? You know, I, at the end of the day, I'm probably the last person who should explain technological progress because I'm the technical side is the part that I understand the least well, despite having taught for 20 years at MIT. The social progress is what, and cultural progress is what I understand better. And you know, what I'm interested in is I think you can see that those people begin to engage with media on a more consistent basis day by day, hour by hour, when we become more confident in our use of it, we innovate as individuals and as communities in our use of that technology. So a lot of contemporary technical innovation is coming not from corporate, media, corporate entities, but from the rapid sort of remixing the modification of the technologies when they're thrown into the world. So if we think about Google Earth or Google Maps and the sheer range of different small-scale innovations which established all kinds of functions of those tools in the society, and many of those functions then have been encoded and incorporated into the apps for the iPhone, we see that the grassroots innovation has been as important in the driving force of this as anything IBM or Microsoft or any other corporate entity has done over this period of time. So if we look at the history of technological development, we might go from the individual tinker or inventors of the late 19th century to the emergence of big corporate research firms, uh, starting maybe with Edison. And now we're seeing a return to a tinkering lifestyle, which means that, yes, a lot of innovation occurs in companies, but an awful lot of it occurs when the, what the company developed gets you know, adapted and appropriated on, uh, after it's been released in the market by innovative consumers who now have the capacity to share their innovations with each other through social networks. And that drives a really rapid set of shifts and all kinds of capabilities for the culture. So we're getting more questions in the chat. When I hear the word tinkering, I always think of John Seeley Brown. Is he somebody that you feel some uh, synergy with? I do. I, I, he's he's here in the in Southern California area, and we've we had lunch with him the last two weeks. Uh, he's also part of the MacArthur Digital Media and Learning Network that I've been very centrally involved with. You know, I think you know I like his work a lot, and yet I often find myself quarreling a bit with some of his formulations. 
he's been promoting lately this idea of learning 2.0. And for me, there's a distinction between Web 2.0 and participatory culture, which is worth singling out. That to me, Web 2.0 is a business model. Participatory culture is a set of social and cultural practices. The history of participatory culture goes back hundreds of years. The business model goes back about four years. So I'm troubled when we take the business model and attach it to education. Because there's a lot of troubling dimensions of Web 2.0 with a set of relations between producers and consumers in the corporate space that I wouldn't want to carry over into the classroom. So substantively, I find myself in total agreement with John C. Lee Brown about a lot of the trends affecting education. But I think his historic ties to Xerox Park probably leads him to be much more open to the movement of metaphors from the corporate space into the education space than I am. Well, so if we, if we move to education, one of the things that you said in the Edutopia interview that I, that I watched was that you feel that schools are doubly failing. Do you want to explain that? Well, I think, I think they fail two kinds of, I'm not sure, I can't remember exactly what I said in that interview, but I would say that they fail two different segments of the population. So if we use as a starting point uh, the Pew Center for Internet and American Life, which tells us that it's shifting number, but it's about 64% of American teens online have produced media, and somewhere between a third and half of teens online have circulated media to other people. And so that describes to us a sizable chunk of the population who are incredibly engaged with technology in their day-to-day -day lives. I just had my students in the New Media Literacies class interview students, um, high school age students, about their relationship to media and education. And I had students from all over the world uh, in my class, and they interviewed kids from all over the world. And consistently we were seeing that the kids they interviewed had richer social lives, intellectual lives online outside of school than they had in school. That they felt their mind, their ability to learn was being shut off. Their minds were being closed down as they entered into a more highly technologically restricted space inside the school. And so the school fails them in a certain way. They're not able to grow as much in school as they would be if they had the same amount of time outside of school to pursue those interests. That's not entirely fair, but it's, there's definitely a tendency in that direction. At the same time, though, that we still have to think about the 34% who didn't produce media in the Pew study, who are being locked out of access to much of these social, many of these social experiences at all because they lack access to technology outside of the school. So that you know, if we think that if we, we the idea was that we'd wire the classroom and that would close the digital divide. Well, we've partially done that, and then we locked out all of the channels of participatory culture that, make, that are allowing the learning to take place outside of school. So if we lock out social networking sites, and we lock out YouTube, and we discourage the use of Wikipedia, and we just, you know, disable blogging tools, and so forth, that we really we add filtering to the computing. We significantly degraded the quality of online experience for those kids who depend on the school to be their point of contact with the technology and the social practices that grow up around it. So we failed both groups. We failed those kids who are technically advanced and who have had rich experiences outside of school, and we failed those students who have limited access outside the classroom and are not able to use the classroom time as an equalizer in access to cultural knowledge and new social skills. So I've definitely noticed in the past six months a, a pretty significant increase in the amount of discussion about participatory culture and how it will change teaching and learning at the conferences I go to. Do you feel that we're going to reach a point at which 
this this becomes a really preeminent discussion. And at that point, what would you recommend that we do to to help it move it in the right directions? Well, I, th I certainly think it's it is the crisis. It's the debate or crisis of our time right now that this the degree to which we've hermetically sealed the schools off from contact with participatory culture, and yet all the research is showing that participatory culture is some of the most rewarding intellectual experiences that students can have. We've got to sort out the relationship between schools as bureaucracies and participatory culture as adhocracies, right? We've got to think about can the things that really work in participatory culture be contained within a classroom with fixed higher power hierarchies between teachers and students and pre-structured curriculum and discipline boundaries and all the stuff that goes in there, or is it precisely about abandoning all of that to create new kinds of structures for the productions and circulation of knowledge? So that's going to be a central challenge to us. And then it's about if we buy in all of that, if we overcome the moral panics and we embrace the pedagogy and we develop teaching methods that reshape our institutions to, to respond to it, then we have to worry about qualities of participation and who's being left out through the participation gap. So I think this is going to be this is a long struggle. And I'm delighted to see teachers taking it up and responding to it. I think it is really an important set of issues. I think the MacArthur Digital Media and Learning Initiative has been key in getting lots of us out there talking to groups, writing about it, uh, doing research around that there's now a critical mass of people in all different disciplines in the universities and with ties to schools, libraries, public institutions, museums, uh, who are asking these questions. And I think that's all for the best. So I'm wondering what it's. Uh, I'm wondering if my perception is accurate because it feels like for the last few years that we've that those of us who've been interested in participative media or in collaborative kind of technologies have lived a little bit in a bubble where we were talking to each other and we were all in agreement. And now that, that that's spreading so widely, are we going to see different kinds of pushback or, or more of a need to to kind of hone the response and arguments related to this? You know, I think we're going to be held account. You know, we we sort of bought the religion collectively, and now we're going to and we we sort of circled the wagons against the the, the illiterate masses who are driven to moral panic over YouTube and MySpace. And now we've actually got to lay the goods on the table. We've got to say, how is education going to be different? We've got to develop teaching materials and methods and resources. We've got to demonstrate uh, success. We've got to develop new assessment matrices for thinking about it. So if we start to be taken seriously, it has to move from being a set of articles of faith to a real body of knowledge and research that we can you know, ground things in. And that's, that's an exciting opportunity. Um, but it's also scary because it forces us to move beyond moral certainty and into a space where we actually have to, to sort of see if our ideas are workable or not. And for me, this is, you know, I didn't set out to be someone who worked in education. I'm a media scholar. The last decade of my life has found me getting deeper and deeper into the conversations about education. Um, and there's a lot, you know, and um, from the switch from writing the white paper that I wrote for MacArthur, laying out the new media literacies, to the last three years developing curriculum materials, testing them in the classroom. Uh, now moving to do some teacher training programs in both Brazil and uh, New Hampshire. That progression is to coming closer and closer to the reality of the classroom as opposed to 
sort of a theoretical sense of what society should do or what would be best or where does media understanding media and culture push us. I've now got to factor in this, the length of class periods and the limitations of teacher training and uh, the, the lack of quality technology in the classroom and how you work around uh, filtering technologies and so forth. And that's all, again all for the good, but it's been definitely an adjustment for me, uh, someone who had not come in as an educational researcher. So it sure sounds like we need to be looking for places to, to gather these best practices and to showcase them. Yesterday I interviewed the folks from Not School, both in the UK and Michigan. And interestingly enough, they still feel you know, a tremendous amount of uh, social pushback because they're doing things that are not traditional. Are you seeing places where, uh, where this kind of conversation or these case studies uh, you feel like are being collected well? I mean, I think I think I think we're starting to see some, and I think you know, I think again, MacArthur is to be credited with an awful lot of the concerted energies that have gone into it. I'm very excited about the upcoming Diversifying Participation Conference that uh, MacArthur is organizing in March, because it's it's you know the goal is to bring together a lot of case studies of a lot of people trying to not only deal with participatory culture but notions of cultural diversity and how those things line up or don't line up well. And we got a bumper crop of submissions for that. I've got to sit down this weekend and start going through the submissions we received. But it looks like there's an enormous amount of interest out there in projects. And yeah, we, none of us know exactly how to make it work. And many of us are facing all kinds of local resistance to what we're doing. So they're probably not going to be perfect case studies. But I think they're going to show us what's possible given the current realities of American education. And I think I'm going to learn a great deal just from reading the proposals, let alone hearing the presentations. So the, the, someone's posted a link to the um, New Media Literacies, uh, the NML white paper PDF. Um, and if you've got any other links, please do feel free to put them in the chat. We really appreciate that. Okay, we're at Q&A time. So hopefully, Terry, you've uh, selected some questions. And if, uh, if you have a question for Henry, I've got quite please. a few. Oh, good. So please feel free to put it in the chat or use the hand with the green up arrow to raise your hand. And we get to demonstrate to Henry uh, the active participation in this actual interview. So hopefully, we do a good job. So uh, what's our first question, Teresa? Well, I think um, I'm going to go back to the beginning a little bit. Uh, there were some questions and conversation around um, just academics and professors, teachers in general, and blogging. And there doesn't seem to be a big adoption from many other professors or teachers. And there's just a couple of questions. You know, what do you, why do you think that is? And how can they get more involved? You know, what, what, what's the value of that in showing your students, you know? We're sitting here and talking about all these things, but if your professors and teachers aren't engaged and involved in it. Well, I certainly would encourage educators at all levels to involve themselves in blogging. It's an important it's very important for academics to become public citizens in the largest sense. That we you know, we have unique opportunities to insert our ideas into broader conversations within our society through the use of blogs. My students often are starting blogs at the master's level and finding themselves connected with professional networks, getting visibility for their works. I could point to any number of students who've gotten job offers uh, through because of things that they've posted on their blogs and the connections that's opened up for them. 
I think it's really, you know, it forces you to be honest and open and write in a language that's not insular and specialized because once you start blogging, you're writing to a community larger than your own discipline. And you feel really stilted if you're doing bad imitations of French theory on your blog as opposed to engaging in a conversation with non-academic ex you know, experts about the stuff that you have as common interest. So I think it's really important. The biggest obstacle I think right now is that blogging doesn't get factored into tenure decisions at the university level. Uh, and that blogging leaves many faculty feeling more exposed about their ideas, their anxieties about other academics taking their ideas. I, to me, I love it when academics take my ideas. Uh, but there's a sense of kind of protectedness that goes on there. But the, the, the tenure thing is big. And so, I've been making the argument in writing tenure letters for younger scholars that blogging combines attributes of teaching, scholarship, and service, which are historically part of the criteria we use to evaluate academic excellence. And so we should see them as extra, you know, above and beyond ex excellent because they are the intersection between the three sets of criteria we historically look at. Perfect. Okay. This is exactly the conversation that was going on, too. So I, I actually just wanted to add a, a sub a sub question to that, and uh, if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts on microblogging and the impact of real time real time blogging as opposed to a set aside blog. I mean, having people at, in the audience at conferences who respond, who record and capture key moments of discussion, and send them out to the world is enormously valuable. I think. Uh, you know, at all the conferences I've been involved with lately, we've had very active discussions taking place through Twitter or, you know, other text-based systems, uh, back various back channels that really enhance the intellectual exchange that's taking place at the at the conference itself. Um, if I have a downside with the sort of microblogging practices, it's what happens to citation and microblogging. So that if I'm in front of an audience and I'm delivering a talk and I quote someone. Uh, once we have to get to the 155 character limit on Twitter, then the attribution to the original author often falls aside. So that uh, at one talk recently, I think it was South by Southwest, I quoted Ethan Zuckerman's wonderful line that any technology sufficient to allow us to share cute cat pictures can bring down a government, which is a great line. And now I routinely see it ascribed to me because I quoted Zuckerman in public. And I've always cited Zuckerman when I do it. But as it travels through Twitter, we simplify things and cut off attribution. And that can result in real distortions of the circulation of ideas. And I think it's something we have to think about is, is how do we build better citation into microblogging. Well, then you kind of just touched on another comment that I'd had on similar. Um, Let's, there were a couple questions around uh, education specifically with bringing in the mobile device. If you saw that as a positive or a negative, and if you had any ideas on how to bring in a new model for learning using mobile devices. Well, I mean, I think the augmented reality experiments that have been going on are probably the most promising one for thinking about mobile technologies. Uh, so it's this work that's done by Eric Clawford at MIT and Kurt Squire and uh, David William Schaefer Williamson at Wisconsin have been among those experimenting with this. But this is to create a kind of information layer over the physical world 
that as we move through the streets, I mean, so there are a variety of versions of it. One is a kind of documentary one. I had a student work on a project where if you walk through the streets of Paris, you saw what the buildings looked like 100 years earlier, just because they were triggered by the GPS locator in your mobile thing. Eric uh, Clopper's work at MIT, Environmental Detectives, there's a scenario of a chemical leak from the MIT campus into the Charles River. You walk around the campus and you drill imaginary wells uh, using fictitious data that's triggered by GPS. And uh, you have to rely on that fictitious data and your real observation of erosion patterns, proximity to the river, and so forth to work through together as a team what the likely cause of the chemical leaks are. And so it's a kind of mixture of the mobile technology real world embedded in the real world. We have layers of data that can either produce games or documentary experiences uh, that gets us out of the classroom and into, and into other kinds of learning environments. Now, Clearly, given the way to which we want to contain and restrict the movements of students through public schools, augmented reality presents certain challenges. It's a different kind of field trip than we've seen before. And it's one that is harder to control and regulate students during. So I think that's the tension from it. But it actually does take advantage of the mobile phone and makes it a richer pedagogical experience. So Terry, we've got about eight minutes left. Do you have some more? Um, I, I think we're, we're pretty much rolling through them. If anybody wants to raise their hand and ask something that maybe I might have missed or we haven't touched on. I'd like to ask, uh, Henry, if you're seeing good examples of uh, citizen journalism with students. Well, I, you know, I, I, I am really impressed by my colleagues here at USC, uh, the, the um, the Neon Tommy project at USC has done some amazing reporting using high, uh, undergraduate and graduate students taking to the streets using uh, digital technology. They just, just did some, uh, some really interesting investigations in deaths caused in LA by swine flu by going through government records on a kind of scale that very few reporting operations could do because you've got enough student journalists to really through and discovered that a lot there had been some deaths that had been covered up by the government for one reason or another, uh, and that was uncovered. And that's now moved into the mainstream discussions here in LA. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a story that's moved from a, a student journalist project into the, the journalistic mainstream, and that's that's something I think that's very possible in um, in college journalism. Um, you know, the, 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 Knight Center, the Knight Foundation just has done this uh, new report on the information needs of communities, and it, which it advocates that as newspapers crumble, one of the sites that's going to have to pick up the pieces is going to be universities, and by which they mean both student journalist projects that could do kinds of reporting that would be difficult for established newspapers to do, but also academics becoming taking responsibility for shaping the circulation of important new ideas and important conversations in the, in the society through their blogs. And both of those seem to be important thing, functions that are going on right now. I mean, journalism is in trouble. And school journalism programs may be the best place to experiment with alternative tactics, alternative uses of media platforms, even alternative business models for supporting it. That said, I should note that I'm not a big fan of the term citizen journalism because it seems to me a term like horseless carriage describes a new system in relation to the system that it's replacing. It does a disservice to both journalism and to citizens 
to restrict what's going on here to simply a replication of the function of newspapers by amateurs. Though what's going on in terms of information rich environments is much more diverse than the models that newspapers give us. And we're blind if we only look at those things that look like traditional journalism and rather than looking at the full spectrum of civic media that's out there. I think it also brings to the point that the conversation that's going on in the background about um, genuine, authentic content that's got it's it's had the time, it's had the reporting. Those elements aren't really touched on when people are just microblogging. They're quickly putting it putting there, and they're not looking at who the source was, as you mentioned earlier. So I don't know how we can really get around that. Yeah, I, I mean, again, this question of all right. So yes, one of the things, one of the solutions that takes place is that information moves from through society, especially through Twitter. We strip aside the context or nuances of that information, and that's something I think we really have to think about. Um, so the notion of the retweet as both spreading the message and transforming the message for better and for worse is a very real phenomenon. I mean, it results in really exciting things like the sets of the sort of circulation of information out of the streets of Tehran and into America that took place around the, the protest after the Iranian elections. It's a really rich example of the power of that sort of social media to enable us to have a different kind of access to information than we had before. And what was exciting about it is that the minute we had that access, we then put pressure on established journalism who had professional protocols and practices to jump in and cover it more fully because most of us understood that some of what we were receiving was distorted or inaccurate or made up, that the, the reliability of that information is in question. But the openness of social media to give us access to those experiences led to a heightened expectation of what professional journalists could do in terms of covering the story. So it seems like in some ways the Iran story is also kind of a great example of the tension between uh, authoritative structure and the new media, and, and then the fact that sometimes new media is still not enough. Yeah, I, it's not about replacing new old media with new media. It's about understanding more robust relationships between the two. Because old media, traditional journalists has an incredible amount of to offer us. We give it up at our own peril. We need those kinds of established practices and protocols, the ability to dedicate time and resources, you know, economic relative economic independence that professional journalists provide the sets of connections that are built up over years to get access to information. But there are also things that fall off the radar of established news reporting that we need the diversity of perspective, the broadening of output of inputs that social media or new media brings to the table in terms of our ability to understand the world around us. So there's going to be friction. They're going to be, you know, we're going to see bloggers challenge news networks, and we're going to see news networks question information that are circulating through blogs. And both of those are absolutely needed. They have to be a system of checks and balances on the reliability of information that we're receiving at the present moment. Okay, so we have time for one more question. And while uh, while I ask it, it's for David Jakes, who asked it in the in the chat. I'm going to uh, put back up on the screen the uh, schedule of interviews coming up. Uh, thanks to Illuminate. Thanks to you for coming tonight. Thanks to Henry. Henry, David Jakes asks, can you discuss the concept of new literacies versus the development of traditional literacies, but just in a new context? 
Well, I, you know, I think, first of all, the point I always make is that new, the new media literacies are worthless without the traditional literacies. That, you know, there's a lot of people who, uh, there's a kind of generation of people who are saying, forget your text literacy, it's all about audiovisual competencies in the present time. And I don't buy that. I mean, I'm sitting surrounded by books as I'm talking to you. I think that if you can't read and write competently, you can't be a meaningful participant in most of the other kinds of new practices that we're describing. So some of what we're describing is simply the movement of writing into new spaces. Some of it, though, expands on that. So just to stay with the writing metaphor, um, the writing, writing example, to, to go, being able to circulate your content is a central skill. Right? In the past, if you wrote a paper for a class, you didn't worry about its circulation. You didn't worry about influence, who, you know, who's going to pick up your ideas and how they travel. The culture, because you really couldn't. You wrote, you wrote it for the teachers. If you were lucky, your classmates read what you wrote. In a digital age, uh, everyone can disperse their content. And so understanding how content circulates and, and the notion of unintended audiences or reaching desirable audiences, that sort of skills moves from a concern of publishers to a concern of writers. And that's an example of not a totally new literacy, but a shift in what we mean by literacy that emerges as a result of living in social networks. Relatively few of the skills we identify in the white paper are totally new. Some of them, like judgment, are things we would have always valued, but judgment takes on a new emphasis as we think about the world. Part of the argument I've been making about appropriation is that classic writers like Herman Melville or master remixers of their culture, and appropriation is always how we've written. But some things like collective intelligence or simulation exploit the affordances of new media much more fully, and they take on extra importance uh, at the present time as we respond to a changed media environment. Okay, so Henry, you can't see this, but I'm clapping for you. There's a little clapping hand symbol in Illuminate that lets you clap, and, and the audience is now clapping for you. You, you've been terrific to come on tonight. I promised you a one-hour session uh, and certainly have really appreciated uh, your being able to spend the time with us. Um, the book that I read in preparation was Convergence Culture. There are eight others, I think. Certainly there's no lack of uh, material from Henry? Actually, 12 others 12 at this point, others. so the numbers have gone up. The other thing is we have a new a name community around Project New Media Literacies. Uh, so if you go to the Project New Media Literacies site, if people want to be part of a larger discussion of this stuff, they should check it out. And uh, we'd love to see some more people yes, join. And that's been posted in the chat, and I'm sure you'll get some people coming in. So uh, thanks to Henry. Thanks to everybody who's come thanks, tonight. Thanks, Henry. We, we are going to try and experiment. Henry, you don't need to stick around because we, we recognize you may not be able to. But for those who want, we're going to have a little bit of a post-show chat. So if there were things you wanted to talk about that you didn't get a chance to, we'll stick around for about 15 minutes. Um, Henry, thanks for the time, and thanks for being such a good sport. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Okay, so feel free to hang up, and we're just going to keep going on. So uh, for those of you who uh, are used to sort of finishing right on time, I hope we did that well tonight. But we also wanted to give a chance for those who wanted to stick around to, to raise your hand, to talk, to grab the mic, and to talk in case there are things that you wanted to talk about that you didn't get a chance to during the session. So I'll stick around for another 15 minutes. Teresa, I don't know what your time is like. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in. I'm here. Okay. Feel free to leave if you're done. There's no reason to stick around if you, if you uh, need to go. But uh, is there anybody who wanted to bring something up that didn't get brought up in the session and uh, would like to talk about it with the group? 
I can give the mic to all. The problem is you've got to remember you've got to, it'd be easier if you ask for the mic, then I'll give it to you. Oh, so Spinelli actually has hand raised for asking for the mic, but I'm wondering if that meant you were clapping. Yeah, that's gone down. But Deb, is there something you want to talk about that um that didn't get brought up or did we want to drill down on any of the conversation? There was more it was much more material than I had a chance to go through uh in the interview uh that, that caught my eye in the book. Uh, and I was particularly kind of interested in the, the ways in which old mindsets are now being brought to participative technologies. And it almost feels like in some ways that the battle is harder. You know, maybe the parallel would be uh, that as we've taught teachers more about the Internet, they actually become more restrictive than they were before. And I'm, and I'm seeing now sort of um, a broader range of response to participative technologies in education, um, more people who are really proactively trying to implement it, and then more who are now discovering it and, and uh, feeling some uh, desire to kind of lock it down. Deb, you have the mic. You're so funny. Um, <laughs> I read your white paper, Steve, that you had just, that you just put out, um, and you were talking about Illumini and talking about Oh, my brain's a little bit weak tonight, but professional development, oh, it was something that you were talking to administrators, and at the end it talked about having Illuminate be like their professional development forum. Right, this is, there's the Learn Central project I'm working on, which is a, basically a social network for education. Is that what you're thinking of? It is. But... um. This the forum that you've developed here at night with all these different people talking is is a really valuable professional development forum, and what I wondered is, do you have like a sample like if if I wanted to go to my professional development person say and say, "Look, here's an opportunity I'd like to kind of show it to you is there is there something like a a video like a formula, or like a, a formula for how it works well. You mean about the interview kind series? Kind of like you talk about in the paper. In the paper, you talk about having your own logo, and it would sort of be like I I associate Illuminate with you, Steve, and Classroom 2.0 and Learn Central. So in my mind, they're all synonymous. But if you were going to do it as a school district for professional development, I guess I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around what it would look like. Oh, interesting. Like a personal well, branding, maybe. Yeah, well, well, yeah, I mean, I, school. I guess well, in, this is a contributory response to your paper. I read it, right, and right. I'm part of your group here, but I can't see what it would look like for an administrator. So if I wanted to go to them and say, or market it for you, or talk about it, I really don't know how I would do that, or what it would look like, or if I could say, here's a video, this is how it works. Etc. So that's a great point. Our school has a our school has so tool. many. Yeah, kind of. But our school has so many professional development initiatives. Steve, uh, the list is endless, and they drop every single one of them, and there's never closure. It's really sad. Well, so one easy thing you so, can do is is you can either use LearnCentral.org, which is free, to start a group there. And you can actually look at the groups that are there because there are some schools and districts starting groups. And it's pretty fully functional, the, the group capability. It's more 
Unlike a Ning group, it's a really sort of high-functioning group capability. Or you can look at things like the New Media Literacies Ning or Classroom 2.0, because those are other ways in which to organize. You know, one of the advantages that we, that we hope Illuminate brings to the picture is you have Illuminate baked in. So you not only have the ability to, to do the traditional educational networking, but you also have the, the opportunity to, you know, to do the kind of synchronous um, participation that's going on. But I'll, I'll take that, I'll think about that, and I'll certainly think, um, maybe I'll connect with you offline. We don't have to keep everybody on tenant on that topic because it is, you know, sort of illuminates more commercial side. But, but it's a great feedback and I'll definitely uh, be thinking about that. And I really love these sessions at night and I'm kind of stunned by the numbers of people who come because, you know, this is usually after hours, uh, free time. It's just a, a choice to come and be a part of this. And I think it represents a real desire to connect and collaborate. I would love for you to do a quick check um, X and ask the people who are left here, there's 30, 37 of us, ask how many have microphones connected. So if you have I, a microphone I'm, connected, click on the green check mark below the participant window. And if you don't, click on the red X. And, and I'll tell you what, I, this is going to be fun to kind of talk about for a moment. <clears throat> Sue Waters, who does a beginner show for Classroom 2.0, uh, every other week, uh, midweek, is very much more sort of demanding that the audience use the microphones to participate. And it's kind of interesting because I, I really sympathize with the lurker, and I want the lurker to be able to be here and not feel pressure that they're going to actually be asked to say something. Uh, but I also recognize that that strategy means that oftentimes you don't get the level of participation that Sue gets where she just sort of throws the mic at people. Do you feel differently about that, or, there, or does anybody want to comment on that? Because it looks like a lot of people obviously have microphones. They're just choosing not to speak. It may also be a little intimidating to ask Henry Jenkins a question, much less intimidating to ask Steve Hargadon a question. So what were the numbers of the poll here? Oh, yeah, here, I'll, I'll put the poll up here. We'll do the, let me close down this web tour window and we'll do this. Because, like, there was, somebody, there was somebody in the chat, his name was Pedro, and he had a question and he really wanted it asked. And so I, I sent him a message directly and said, raise your hand. Yeah, the, the only but, problem with Pedro's question, the reason I didn't ask it was because we were right at the end of the show. No, I, I, no, I absolutely know that. I understand that. But you're right, and, okay. and David and David Jakes, who was on, is a good friend of mine, and you know, and, and he didn't want to take the mic. I, I you know, I, Greg is saying, and I think I agree, that that I this can be an intimidating environment, and and I'm so hopefully I'm doing the right thing by trying to make it such that you don't feel if you come that you're going to, you know, have to go out of your comfort zone. In the same way that I hope that Classroom 2.0 and LearnCentral.org are places that you can come, and participate at your own pace. Well, I think that this is also an excellent um, lesson because it really kind of shows as a classroom teacher what's really going on in your classroom with the kids that are sitting there, that talking is a scary thing. And that's why someone told me that if you had the ability to have children um, writing, you know, where you could do... Um, 
I always get asynchronous and synchronous confused. But if you could have students chatting at you, because the chat room is wicked active. So people are communicators. They just don't want to talk. Well, there's a, you know, I always think about how long it took me to edit my first wiki. And I'm, you know, I consider myself a wiki warrior now. I mean, I love wikis and I love what they can do. But it was, I often say a year. I think it may even have been two years after I learned what a wiki was that I actually was brave enough to edit one. So I definitely recognize that it can take time. And, you know, what we're seeing, at least with the Host Your Own Webinar series, where you can use, and Learn Central, you can use Illuminate for free to run a webinar, we're definitely seeing an uptick in people doing that. And, and I, I'm not sure I would have predicted how hard that would seem to people right off the bat because I think I went a little sort of um, starry-eyed. But it's definitely taken time for people to get used to the idea of actually hosting a webinar. And you know, we're also moving to this idea of you don't actually have to present, but you could just facilitate a discussion. So I think um, Matt from um, Palo Alto is probably going to be one of our first ones where you actually hold a session, which is not a presentation, but I just want to talk about this topic. I think it was staff meetings. So hopefully you know, we provide additional sort of enticing ways for people to get their foot in the door, recognizing that sometimes it can take years to become comfortable with a, a new way of doing things. Yeah, I, I will say Deb's talking about Henry's work. Uh, I, you know, I give myself about three hours to prepare for an interview by reading the material beforehand, and um, usually I can get through someone's book in three hours and feel like I really got it. In Henry's case, that was way, way too much. So I, you know, I've got to say it was really uh, an incredible amount of depth in that material. I'm, and I plan on going back and, and really looking at it. I also really I, I sent an email off to uh, Aaron Riley, a lot of people know, who's at MIT Media Labs, is now also at USC, and said, hey, hey I think we need to do a you know, USC Annenberg series because there's so much great material coming out of there, both Annenberg, uh, MIT New Media Labs, and Berkman, the Berkman Center at Harvard. I'd really love to do uh, you know, sort of a series of sessions from those three organizations that I think are doing such amazing work. Anybody else want to bring anything up that didn't get brought up in the session? Or It looks like some number of you have stayed. Maybe, maybe you just left your computer and it's still running and we think you're here. But I think for others, you know, just a chance to kind of decompress is good. Oh, let's see. I told Steve you've got your hand raised. Does someone else have their hand raised that I missed? So, Deb, I keep that uh, the uh, uh, the idea of having students do uh, media literacy parent night. I make that suggestion everywhere I go. So I'm I'm sure smarter people than me are doing that somewhere, and I would love to focus on that at some point. Uh, Peg, Angie, and Greg have had hands up. Did anybody, did the, any of the three, either of the three of you, any of the three of you want to chime in? It says, what about battling some of the tool focus for in the need focus? Oh yeah, so one thing, great comment, Fred. One thing that I found really fascinating about um, the Convergence book was, and I'm going to get the exact quote, uh, Henry talks about the difference between media 
and transmission devices where the you know if the if the medium is film or video that there can be a variety of ways of transmitting that and the transmission tool may change or die or or diminish but uh, he he says something like once you establish that there's a human hunger for that form of media that it will likely uh, you know, just change how it gets transmitted. I th and I thought that was really um, brilliant. And so rather than botching it, I'm going to look for the quote. And, and no, Steve, I, I wanted to say something during the talk, but I don't know how many people re realize that with Twitter, something like um, the retweet was a behavior of the group, like that was developed and adopted by people to put the retweet. That's right. not an actual form or function that was Twitter. Well, I think Twitter actually tried to create a way to do it, and it wasn't as Nobody good. liked it. <laughs> right. But also the lists, I think the new lists in Twitter, I haven't used them myself yet, but I think they also came from users. So Kathy, I'm giving you the mic, uh, and uh, I want you to try talking if you're willing. You click on the microphone button, the larger icon in the audio box to turn your mic on. I know you put your question in the chat, but if you there you there go. You go. Yeah. <laughs> Just wondering if you could suggest a good resource for media curriculum grades K twelve. So I'm not so going to be the one to do, one to show, do so. But does anybody, but does anybody have, anybody a have a recommendation? So Kathy, so Kathy, you need you to turn your mic off when you're not talking because it's creating an echo. But uh, a line says medialit.org, or maybe that was a message you were sending to someone else. Does anybody have a Project New Media Literacies has a, has loads of curriculum material? I know what BrainPop is. BrainPop from Allison. Yeah, interesting. I, I know BrainPop, but I've not really looked at their material at all. Thanks for being there brave, Kathy. Go ahead. There, there were some ideas, Steve, the night that Joyce, Joyce V, I can't remember, Valenza or something Valenza, like that. Yeah. yeah. She was on with Howard. So if Kathy had the opportunity to maybe go to the night where it was Howard, Joyce, and another woman, and we were talking about media, I think in the chat room there was a lot of information shared that night. So Kathy, go to uh, futureofeducation.com. Uh, you know, just do a scan down to the recorded interviews. This one with Howard Reingold and Joyce Valenza, and uh, you should be able to click through that and just pull up the chat log, and you can search through that. Um, what um, what Deb's saying is she thinks there were some really good references in that chat to places for that kind of uh, curriculum. Thank you so much. I appreciate all your help. Oh, you're most welcome. Anybody else want to be brave? Want to just anybody want to just take the mic to see what it's like? Take that bold leap into the unknown of speaking. You don't even have to have a question if you just want to. You ask your kids to do in class every day. <laughs> What's that? I said like they as they as they do with their children in class every single day. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So uh, there you go, Mark. Okay, you have the mic now. To turn your mic on, you click on the larger microphone icon in the audio area. 
And Allison asks, can you use your built-in mic? And you can. How's that? Can you hear me? Absolutely. Hey, you're oh, live. Terrific. I'm just the, the, the bold and the beautiful wanting to say thank you to everyone who's participated and especially to the organizers. I think it's a great forum and really look uh, forward to being involved more because I'm striving to really push the envelope of the school that I teach at. Oh, good. Thanks for coming, Mark. Glad to have you here. Great. Allison, did you want to try your built-in mic? <laughs> Greg, you talk if there's something specific you'd like to talk about. I like Greg's comment. I'd give you the mic, Greg, but I know that you would just be telling people to go to your Ning site. Wink, wink. <laughs> okay, everybody. Hey, that was a lot of fun. Why don't we close it down? Have a great night. Again, really appreciate Thanks, you being here. Should be fun tomorrow and Thursday. And if you can't make it, do know that there are recordings. And um, sure, sure appreciate you taking the time to be with us tonight. I'm going to turn this off in a minute. I also just wanted to make one last comment. If anybody has any feedback or um, questions or whatever, please feel free to, to post them on the conversations.net community in Ning. You know, if you have feedback, suggestions, we can put them in there and look at them. Be great. Good call. Thanks, Teresa. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Allison, this will be archived. It'll be up uh, tonight or tomorrow. Uh, just whatever link you came in, you used to come to the show, um, whether it was conversations.net or learncentral.org or futureofeducation.com, there will be a recording link. Yeah, I actually wrote, a, a, wrote I actually prepared a two-page, I don't know if I'm saying your name right, a line, but um, the two-page sheet on uh, using Illuminate and Learn Central in case of an emergency or school closure, how you can use it for free and what things you can do. And that's in my portfolio in LearnCentral.org. So if you go to Learn Central, I automatically become your friend and then look in my portfolio and you'll see a two-page paper on that. Yes, you just click on the big talk button in the future to talk. Okay, good night everybody. When I'm going to close this down, it'll, it'll bump you out. So have a good night. <laughs>